What's up, peeps? This is Rich here, and I have to be honest. Today is one of the best episodes we've ever done here. I absolutely freaking love it, and I love I love all the podcast episodes. Don't get me wrong, I really do, but this one I think I love the most. Taylor Cruz is the co-founder of Cruz Elite and is a performance and wellness coach with a focus on elite human performance. So what does that actually mean? Well, during the episode, we talk about a lot of cool things. It might be outside of the normal normal activities that you're doing during your training. We talk about the, the best mobility movements that runners need to be doing and when to do it and why overbreathing can lead to poor performance and how to fix that. And how visual and coordination training might be the missing piece to your athletic performance. So there's tons of stuff, great info stuff from the front to back. So stick around for the entire thing. Uh, But before we get started, I would like to remind you to rate and review, hit subscribe button so you can get all the goods from Reinforced running directly into your ears. Awesome. Well, thank you for listening. And here is Taylor Cruz. Taylor Cruz, hello. How are you, Rich? Good, man. Thanks for joining me today. I'm, I'm really excited to dive into some of the methodology that you teach. It's kind of it's really been kicked around the OCR world. A lot of the top athletes are getting into it. I practice some of the things myself, just some of your basic things that you you have um, to consume. So I'm really excited to dive in. But but first, like because of this quarantine, um, I'm curious and I and I'm looking for for advice. What is a show that you've been able to binge on since the quarantine? Since the quarantine. Um, or that you would recommend during a quarantine? Gosh. So we don't watch that much because we don't, you know, I don't even have cable. We'll throw on Netflix in the evening and stuff. And I think uh, at this point with my partner, Alicia, we've rewatched Friends a million times. So. Yeah. It's an easy, it's an easy watch. Yeah. It's, there, there's no problem. It's, and does it hold up? Like, I don't think I've watched an episode in a couple of years. Is it funny still or is it? It's funny, but it's just like, it's just easy on your, on your mind. So it's like good, good thing to chill out to in the evening. I find the same thing. And, and we're the same way here. We don't have a TV, we don't have cable. So it's Netflix right, or whatever, right. whatever we yep. have. And we won't really be involved in a show at any particular time. We tried to put on the wire the other day. We put it on for like two minutes and we're like, this is too heavy. Let's <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we ended up putting on like community, which is a, a, another comedy that's on Netflix, which is hilarious. And I, and I would recommend it. Okay, cool. Um, so what is something that you thought was cool when you were younger, but like now looking back, you realize that it, it wasn't actually cool. Mm, probably like trying to dye my hair with hydrogen peroxide back when I was a skateboarder. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is, that is such a thing. Like, and with the peroxide too, I had friends yep. that would do that. I right. definitely did the, the whole, would it turn like red or would it be like blonde? It was like, for co- you? It was like copper. Yeah. 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 Cause some people whose hair might be lighter, like you and I, we both have pretty dark hair. Like if they're lighter, they might turn like, have like that M&M type of white, like right, blondish right. color, but no, it's like reddish. For... I was going for the blonde tips, but <laughs> you know, over and over again, it never happened. 
Oh my God. That is such a, that, I don't know if that's still a look, but yeah, I thought about that recently. Someone had, uh, because just uh, because of the quarantine, I heard something like the peroxide, like you swap your nose with it or something. It helps kill the germs. Hmm. You know, there's a lot of information being tossed around now. Yeah, there is. And I was like, Oh cool. And we could like dye our hair then later. And my girlfriend, Amy was like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, it was a thing, <laughs> but yeah, I'm glad that you grew out of that one. Um, Cool. So what is what is a skill that you think everyone should have? Not even physical, it could be any type of skill. Hmm. Good decision making. Hmm. Would you that call that a, a skill? Like is that develop like you can develop that or you just curse? Yeah, you can you can develop that. S- such as when and when not to dye your hair. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so that that skill has been crafted over the years so that's true we can we can definitely do that um what is one thing that everyone loves that you hate um it seems because i'm from massachusetts originally so uh it's not that i hate it but I don't really get into following those types of professional sports, like following the Red Sox and the Patriots and all that. And so it's not that I hate it, but it seems like everyone around me is doing that. And I've always been the guy that is not. That's a great one for, for someone in New England. Because <laughs> does it seem like it just comes up in conversation without it, without even like just being a guy, being in New England, are people just talking about the Pats? Yeah, I mean, it's everywhere. Everywhere you go, that kind of thing comes up. So, and do they just assume that you're you're following? Definitely, especially yeah. given, <laughs> especially given the line of work that I'm in with, you know, training and conditioning. And uh, yeah, I just never really got into into like that following those types of pro sports. Yeah, it's it's like yeah, you're a, you're a gym guy. Like mm-hmm. you like sports, right? It's exactly. Like, wow. That's funny, yeah, because it's it's very similar here in Philadelphia. I mean, we're sports crazed, so yeah, they'll yeah. definitely say the same thing. And I just assume it's because of the poor weather is is kind of my thought around it that people mm-hmm. like the sports is what we do, and like really, it's not outdoorsy here at all. So sports really kind of takes over. Like, right. do you think it's the same way in in Mass, or is it just? It could be. I never really thought about it like that, but you know, so I'm I'm not really. I'm not really sure, to be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 I don't know if it's just in the culture and just part of it, what everybody Definitely does. Definitely part but of the culture, yeah. Yeah. I found myself growing away from sports more and more as I get older. But yeah, growing up, it was just like what you did, what you watched. Right, right. But that's a great one. So so no Pats. Uh, you're, not, you're not sad. Tom Brady's not there. But um, no. But you were, you were a wrestler, right? Yeah. So my last question is, is, is it true that in wrestling, if you keep your elbows in, you'll win. That's the only, that's the only advice I know on wrestling. And is that true? So that's good advice. Cause you definitely want to keep your elbows tight to your body. I don't know if it's going to make it so that you win. Cause there's so <laughs> many, so many variables, but yes, that's good advice in wrestling. I think wrist control elbows in. Yep. That's the terminology. So I got, I got the high school I went to here in Pennsylvania was uh, a, like a wrestling powerhouse. When I was in high school, they yeah, won. That's the a good area. Yeah, like Lehigh Valley, I went to a school called Easton, um, mm-hmm. and they won uh, the state four years in a row. They would have you know regular state champs. Um, so yeah, I, I like wrestling. I follow it. Like I, I would go to all the matches, so I know a little bit about it. I, nice. I can, I could probably score a match if I if I watch it. Do you follow like Olympic wrestling at all? Yeah, or yeah. That- I um, I'm I'm much more. I, I follow a lot of individual sports, and wrestling's one of those that I that I definitely 
keep track of. Um, yeah. So, so I'm, I'm watching the Olympic level stuff, just, you know, all the international level stuff, freestyle, all that. And, and even college. And, uh, do you watch like follow like flow wrestling? Is that where you catch yeah. it all? Yep. Yeah. Yep. That they were the first ones. Cause I, I was a track athlete. It's kind of the same thing. Unless you have done track, like watching track, isn't going to be that appealing, especially a distance event, like watching yeah. a 10 K, like somebody do like 26 laps. Right. Probably not going to do it. So there's flow track as well. So I knew, uh, of, of that piece. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. What is, um, what is the coolest part about wrestling? Like watching it? Like what is like the biggest appeal of it? As far as like being a spectator and watching it, just what like you like the most about like that. I, you could... I like how dynamic it is. It's um, it's one of the most dynamic sports. You know, you almost have to be like, it, it's got like elements of gymnastics in it, um, in terms of what you need to be able to do with your body, mm-hmm. and it's super fast and explosive. It's super dynamic. And endurance is a huge part. It is. It is. You know, you gotta be, you gotta have grit to do it. And, and it's it's got a lot of cool things involved in it. And I think about it now, looking back at these kids who were literally just set up against each other, like mano y mano in high school, it doesn't seem like there's anything like that. You have to be like, or to be presented with that or or grown up with that. It's, it's something that most people don't have. Yeah. it's, It's like, it's just you. It's, trying to impose your will on somebody else and they're trying to do the same thing. Yep. Was it really stressful as a kid or did you just not know? It can be, but you know, it builds a lot of character and there's something just like what you said, there's something to be said about that one-on-one situation. And when you lose, it's because somebody held you down against your will. Elbows got out. And you couldn't do anything about it. And then you got to go shake their hand and, their hand gets raised and yours doesn't. And it's, uh, you have to be able to deal with that kind of thing. And it's, it's a much different feeling than say being out on the field with your team and losing a game Mm -hmm. wrestling. It's all you. It has to be humbling. And on on the, on the other side, like I said, I went to high school with all these kids who never lost. So they were, their heads were just so big. They were untouchable because they were in this sport where they literally were, you know, they, they went one-on-one with something and they came out and you kind of have to have that. I would imagine that you, like the confidence level that you have to bring into a match must like be really hand in hand with the results you get. Like if you go in and you doubt yourself, it's probably not going to go very well. Oh yeah. There's no room for doubt. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. So it, it, it's definitely a cool sport and I should probably try to pick it back up. But when it gets to the higher level stuff, it's less fun because they're so good. Yeah. <laughs> like everybody's so good. So I'm just, just being defense and you have to have a real fine appreciation for it at that point. Yeah. Yeah, Exactly. Um, cool, man. Awesome. So done with the question so we can start to get into the good stuff, but first just, um, tell us a little bit more about yourself, who you are, a little bit about your background and you know, what you're, what you're doing now at Cruise Elite. Sure. Uh, yeah, our company is Cruise Elite and I say our company cause it's co-owned by myself and my partner, Alicia. And, uh, yeah, we're up here in New Hampshire in the white mountains and we, uh, you know, there's a couple different, um, aspects of our business. So, we are in the online space primarily right now. So we've got a couple different things going on there from uh, remote programming for our clients, you know, general population clients and also professional athletes. And then we also have like a membership platform where we do uh, different educational topics where we're essentially uh, training other trainers and coaches and people just in the health industry. And those are the two areas in terms of our uh, our online business 
And then we also do some in-person stuff as well. Not quite as much as we were doing when we had a, uh, a studio location in Massachusetts, but I'm still working with, um, with my athletes in person from time to time and, and that kind of thing. So, Yeah, the online space is very intriguing that way because if you do want to spread the word as much as possible and help the most people – that's the, the the ideal way to do it. Like right, if you can right. see people one-on-one, I mean, that's optimal for that one person, but to, to reach the most people that need and can benefit from what you're doing, like it kind of has to go online. And- it, it does. It does. And we've just really learned that in the last few years. And we've been making this transition over the last, um, and over the last couple of years. So we were at that crossroads where when we had our, our in-person studio, you know, even between both Alicia and I, you can only have so many sessions in person. And we just had to, yeah, start thinking a little bit bigger and figure out how we might uh, be able to affect more people online and what that would, what that would consist of. And so now we're, we're doing a number of different things, including right now, um, building programs that, that are, you know, that will allow us to take our philosophy and, and reach larger groups. They can more or less like commoditize it. So you can, it doesn't have to be some high end product that only the elite can afford, right? Right. Literally afford. And and then you can spread, spread it out to reach the, the widest group of people. Yeah, exactly. So, so I did notice that from, from the things that you offer. And it's a really great way that, that you're able to kind of expand that because it becomes clear that you guys are about helping people in that respect, because you could do one-on-one in person and just charge a shitload right. <laughs> and just, and like probably do just as well monetarily. But when it's about helping people, it's about um, stretching. So people can kind of get that access, which is That's awesome. Right. And so it, from my perspective, the training that um, you and Alicia provide and the information it's, it's not necessarily mainstream or however you want to stamp it. It, it does seem a little bit um, outside the box of what the general population or even like regular trainers would, would see. And one thing that I had noticed that you guys talk about, and that I've kind of seen maybe at like the highest level of professional athletes is the decision training. Mm-hmm. And one thing that really resonated with me that you had mentioned was that, you know, things come down to speed and strength, but really it's about how quickly your brain can process that kind of information. Yeah. And that sounds like something that is hard to, to measure and hard to see in other people. Like, like I can see, I can know if someone's stronger than me or faster than me, but mm-hmm. how I can't really tell if um, they're just making decisions better. So h- how do you help train athletes to help like process information better so they can utilize their speed and strength? It's a great question. I mean, that, that right there is really the essence of, of what we do because the, the philosophy that we use is very neurocentric, meaning that we're always thinking about what the brain and nervous system are doing and how the brain and nervous system are responding to any given training stimulus that we use. So for our listeners, um, it might be, it might be new to even boil it down to like brain function and nervous system function in terms of exercise and training. So what's important for people to understand first is what we call neurology 101. So you have to understand like, what is the primary job of the brain and nervous system? And it comes back to what you just described as the ability to process information, make decisions with that information, and then create an output, which would be the movement that we're trying to do. So if you think about it like this, our our brain and our nervous system are designed to take in information from the outside world. 
And we do that through a number of different senses. And so many of those senses people are, are already familiar with. So we're talking senses like smell and taste and uh, what we see through our visual system and maybe what we feel through you know, sensation on our skin, but also through proprioception. So like when we're moving, what kind of information our joints are actually relaying back to our brain. So um, these are all these are all basically senses that are constantly sending that information to our brain. And our brain then has to go through a interpretation process of that information. So it has to interpret and then decide what to do with that information. And then once it does that, there's an eventual output. And that output could be any movement that you're practicing. That output could be squat, lunge, you know, push up, pull up, whatever, whatever it is that you're doing. So the essence of what we do on the neurocentric side of things is we use different senses and we stimulate those senses to create a higher quality output. So the quality of the inputs coming in is going to determine the quality of the outputs that are happening. So that means that we can, we can consider uh, inputs like any of the training tools that we're using. We can consider the inputs different exercises that we're using, whether it's a vision exercise or a balance exercise or even using a kettlebell in a certain way or a band in a certain way. And that information that we get from those training stimuli has to go somewhere and it goes to our brain. And the faster our brain can interpret that information and most importantly, be accurate in its interpretation, the higher quality the output will be. So, so that is that decision-making loop in terms of what our brain and nervous system is designed to do. So it's inputs come in, your brain then tries to interpret and decide what to do with them, and then there's the eventual output. So that's, that's neuro 101. Mm. And that's very important to us when we're training. And has that become part of the training process is the education behind this? And is that like explaining to people like why they are doing certain Definitely. things? Definitely. Because if I don't do that, it's going to be tough to keep them around because, you so know, like, I don't feel an arm pump right now. Like, what do you Yeah, like a, a push up to most people is just a push up, but a push up to us requires a number of different things that our brain and nervous system has to be able to do. Hmm. And, and, um, and all movement for us is really a window into someone's brain function. So, so yeah, it's exactly. And yeah, could you dive a little bit more into what a, what an example, like a practical example would be something that I think of a lot of times when it comes to people just not having it connect well with movement would be something like a hip hinge where it's like, yes, like tuck and like, push your butt back so you can get into proper squat form or however it's, it's traditionally taught. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there just doesn't seem to be a connection. It's not that they can't do it. It's just that they haven't been able to do it is the way it kind of um, like brings to me. So is there an example like in, in a push up or a hip hinge that you would give them a specific input so that they could create this output? Yeah, exactly. So let's say you're working on a movement skill like a hip hinge. The first thing that you, you know we generally would do is what can we do locally 
in the area of the body that we want to express better movement? What can we do with that area to potentially improve the movement? So if it's a hip hinge, we might look at, you know, do you have the, the, um, the right or the uh, hip mobility that's necessary for the skill? So we could perform a hip mobility drill and then reassess with the hip hinge and see if the hip hinge is better. And that would be one way to sort of uncover what the right input might be for improving that skill. Mm. And, you know, there's a number of different things you could do starting locally like that is just a really simple way to approach it. But the cool thing is when you start diving into neurology, there can be other things that come into play for that same hip hinge that seem completely unrelated. For example, your vestibular function, and that's a fancy word, your vestibular system. Um, that's a fancy word to describe your inner ear and the organ that we have in there to help us understand where we are in space, which way we're traveling and which way is up. Hmm. And a lot of people are familiar with it in their own way. Cause if you've ever heard of somebody having like vertigo yeah. and getting dizzy, right? That's a, that's a problem occurring in the inner ear. If they have like an ear infection and they do their balance. Yeah. Ear and then that'll throw your balance off. So your vestibular system has huge importance when you're moving because for a hip hinge, if my head is going to move through space as I hip hinge, that means my vestibular system has to be sensing and measuring that movement as I move through space. If there is, if it's working really well, then there, my body will not be threatened at all to make the movement. But if my brain is unsure a little bit by what is going to happen, like maybe my brain thinks it's unsafe to move at high speed in that mm. direction, then we may see that it's harder for a person to do things like hip hinges or squats or lunges because their vestibular function is not, is not where it needs to be. And in those cases where it is the vestibular system, is, is there like a dysfunction there because of something that may have happened in a previous experience, or is it just lack of literally working it out or, or it, so both, yeah, both of those things come up all the time. So, you know, one of the things that we do with everybody that we work with is we take an extensive health history mm. and, and we keep taking the health history as time goes on. Cause you know, people remember things that have happened and um, you know, as we go, you know, life changes and, whatever, there's injuries and things like that. So everybody has their own unique health history that can play into why some system may be underperforming. And then sometimes on the other end of things, it is just as simple as they haven't had that training yet. So mm -hmm. their brain hasn't learned those skills yet. Yeah. And that makes sense for someone who might be just new to yeah. fitness or just, or have been sedentary for a long time. Like exactly. you, could, you could like forget. You're right. Right. And when it comes to like that window, when you see these movement patterns, what is that diagnose diagnostic process like for you guys when you're, you're seeing people, is it boiled down to, are there other things like the vestibular system that you guys will approach and try to have like more or less a checklist, right? Like checking for different things to see where, what things could boil down to. So where you can focus, like, what is that diag diagnosis process like? So, yeah, we definitely have one of those. It gets um, relatively uh, complicated, but at the most basic level, when I'm first working with somebody, I'm immediately assessing their coordination. And 
you know, the fancy term for that is cerebellar function. Like I want to know the cerebellum is a part of a person's brain that helps us coordinate tasks. And so all movement for me is essentially a coordination assessment that tells me how they're, they're executing, um, you know, the movement. So if I see like ratchety movements that don't look smooth in nature, I can start to think like, okay, there might be a coordination issue that I need to, that I need to know about. So I'm, I'm immediately assessing for um, coordination deficits. I'm immediately assessing to see how well a person is breathing because breathing comes into, uh, you know, performance in, in a ton of different ways. And it's really, really important. Um, so we have like breathing assessments that we run people through and we have balance assessments that again, go back to like more vestibular function. Mm. How well can this person maintain their balance while their head is moving through space and while their eyes are doing different things. So, so between coordination and balance and breathing, we probably also would look at a person's gait. So their walking gait, their running gait, and those are really all good indicators that give us that window into their, into their function. Hmm. And, and just to double back a little bit more to the like decision training. Yeah. Um, so once you've kind of figured out where the people need to go, like how do you kind of develop a skill like that or how, how can people know if they're behind on something like that or if they're at a point of proficiency or is there, is there like, is it never ending? Is it, is it not linear? Does it keep going or how does it? I, so I do think it keeps going and uh, just because you, you keep developing, you keep developing the skill, but in terms of how do you know when you might have um, an issue there, we have uh, some cool assessments that we run people through. And, and one of them is our coordination chart assessment. So a coordination chart is a piece of paper that we can put on the wall. And if you can imagine, there's 36 images on the piece of paper just in, you know, just lined up. Hmm. And there's a star. And the star is in one of three positions relative to a vertical line. The star can either be on the middle touching the line. It can be to the right of the line or it can be to the left of the line. And there'll be you know, s- slight variations, but it's either middle, right, or left. So what you can do is you can read the coordination chart and we assign movements to each of the stars. So if there's mm-hmm. three, three positions that the stars can be in, and I'll just show you like right here with my arms, I could say, all right, middle, middle star is gonna be lift both arms up over your head, Right star is going to be right arm out. Left star is going to be left arm out. And so then it's like, ready, set, go. And they have to move through this thing, reading the chart as quickly as they can. And it gives us really good feedback on how well they can take visual information and process it and make a movement. Mm. And because the visual system is so dominant in performance, right, this tells us you know, how a person's doing in that category. And we're assessing for things like, how quickly can they do it? Can they stay relaxed as they do it? Or do we start to see them build tension in their body? Are, are people surprised by the outcomes when they go through this type of assessment? Because I'm thinking of some friends who I know do terrible. And I'm thinking of myself, like, I think I might do okay. But I don't know. I haven't done anything like that. I haven't done anything that has much to do with reaction. Because my focus has been endurance for so long that I actually don't know. So are people surprised when they go through this? And yeah, they are. They, they are because the tasks seem pretty seemingly simple. And then when you start running them through this stuff, people 
people are amazed. They like freeze up and build tension in their body. And, you know, it's like, stop, go, stop, go, stop, go kind of reactions. So yeah, they, a lot of times they are. And it looks like you work with a variety of ages from like uh, y- younger kids, like high school age kids um, and up. Mm-hmm. Does it get worse or does it get, is there like, like are younger kids better naturally because they are kind of out there in the world moving more fluidly than an adult who might just be at a desk all the time or does I it? Think it just- so. I, I think in terms of that, yes, I think, I think we generally see that um, younger kids are, are a bit more, uh, a bit quicker, able to process that, that information and make those movements um, a little faster. And then people that are, you know, stuck behind the desk all day, it's like they have to relearn that stuff. And you take it for granted. Like if you played basketball in high school, you're like, I can do this stuff. Like I'm good to go. But right, right. if you're out there, if, you're, if you don't touch that, if you don't keep that skill sharp, um, I'm sure just like anything else. And right. the, the vision is something you mentioned as well. And mm-hmm. Is that like, is that like a full stop if someone's vision is poor or if their vision training is poor? Like how can you train the, the senses to help like in, in, to help with these type of, of movements or assessments or, or, or your general movement? Sure. So yeah, when it comes down to vision, I guess it's important for people to hear that we're not just talking about how clearly you see something. Although mm-hmm. that's like a primary, you know, function of the visual system, right? We want to see things clearly. What we're actually assessing for more often than not is, you know, how well your eyes move because your eyes have muscles. So just like we do mobility drills for our joints, we also want to do mobility drills for our eyes so that we can mobilize those muscles. And the better mm-hmm. that those muscles function, the better that we'll actually move through the world because our visual system is so dominant in everything that we do. It's telling us essentially what to do and when to do it. Hmm. And would that be essentially just like looking back and forth or like following lights or or of some sort? It it could be anything reactive, like that coordination chart example um, still falls into the category of a vision drill because it's visual information that you have to process. We also do more isolated vision drills where you might be like holding a visual target, like something as simple as a, a pen and, you know, you have the pen maybe six inches from the tip of your nose and you're focusing on the, on the near target and then you're jumping your eyes to the far target, going back hmm. and forth, back and forth. And you're essentially um, learning how to bring t- a target into clear focus faster. And that's a very prolific athletic skill because you have to focus on stuff far away, focus on stuff near, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Yeah, the, the example that comes would be a Tom Brady quarterback example, like just for the broad masses is like they literally see everything at all different angles and all different yeah. spectrums of the field. That's right. So with the, the the sense training, is that kind of like the first stop? Like if like the coordination and the vision and, and those things, the way that you get the, the, the input in, mm-hmm. is that kind of like the first place to start? Like is there – a place to move into like regular mobility or, or other type of training before that? Or is this kind of something that you just it, it really think, serve you well? Right. So personally, I think you, the best place to start is with mobility and motor control. Mm. And so moving your joints and because those are so, moving your joints and learning how to do that is usually a really novel task for people because they've never done it before. 
And that was something else that I had on my list here is going through some of the the basic mobility practices that you have. And a lot of them have to do with like mid back and pelvis. Right. And I'm just like standing there and I, I just Nothing's can't, moving. Really, can't really do it. I'm like, I'm watching you. I'm like looking down. I'm like, I don't think this is moving right. So like how, how, how can you do, do these things? How can you move and practice movement? when you can't in the first place, is it just kind of continuing to plug away at it or? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely, it is a practice. Joint mobility really is a practice and it's really common for people to get to some of those spinal drills and pelvic drills and not really be able to move. So, and that's different for everybody. I mean, you, you might be able to keep watching it and then start to figure it out or you might need to modify it in certain ways. Like sometimes with those pelvic drills, we have people sit down and they're in a seat and it's like, okay, now lift one, you know, one side of your pelvis off the, off the bench, put it back down. And so there's definitely ways to modify, hmm. but it is, it is a struggle for people when they start to learn that stuff because it's, it's super novel. They've never done it before. And those are areas of the body that essentially get in, ignored in traditional training. And, and do you, do you feel that that is because of the education around that, like bracing through the core and not, and keeping a complete flat back and kind of just eliminating some of the planes of movement uh, with like your standard gym protocols and kind of how it's taught, right? Like, like yeah. not doing, not twisting as much for the fear of people getting hurt or um, yeah, like everything is neutral spine. Do you feel like yes. that that is part of it? I think that's part of it. For some reason, there is a lot of fear in terms of, uh, you know, around moving the spine, especially if you've ever had, you know, pain, um, you know, somewhere you know, with your, with the spine, but, you know, traditional training protocols, yeah, they, they generally are, are, uh, you know, kind of boxed in, in a sense that you don't see a lot of dynamic movement of the midline. So I think people don't really know what's possible. And then if you look at different athletic, um, you know, skills and and what's happening in different um, athletic activities, you'll see that your spine has amazing capabilities and it needs to be able to move. And then if you don't, if you don't practice that, then if you get forced into those positions in kind of a live situation at higher speeds, you're just more likely to either not be able to use your body the way you want to, or you be, you may be at a higher risk of injury. It's funny because I was talking to a friend of mine who is a PT and I was thinking I was telling him about like potentially doing like Jefferson curls or something like that. And he was like, no, never anything like that. Never anything uh, like it should always be extension and never flexion. And I just couldn't really like it just didn't make sense to me that it's like, okay, well, maybe. But if you practice these specific movements and yeah, if you watch any sport, like there's no they're not limited. Wrestling is the ultimate example. MMA, like you have to move in every specific way. And because I feel like people do get hurt then. And do you feel like it's just because that they, they aren't regularly moving? Well, there's always like an educational piece to it as well. I mean, some people just, they, they need to be coached to learn how to do things properly. So, you know, if people are out there getting hurt, you know, sometimes it really just does come down to a technique issue. But, um, you know, if you look at joints, the, they're, they're designed to do very specific movements and every joint has, you know, um, the ability to, to perform a lot of them anyway, have the ability to perform very full ranges of motion. And, um, the movements are very circular and curved lines, things like that. And 
if you uh, if you don't practice moving through those full ranges of motion, then it's uh, it's pretty difficult to uh, to get into some of those dynamic positions that you were talking about. Yeah, I just can't help but wonder like how we got here with with this, where where most people can't, and I consider myself. Uh, an athletic person who can't and I and I can't do some of these things you know and and it's just it, do you think it's just the way that everybody lives their lives or is just the information that was been pressed down and, and do you get pushback from people or practitioners when it comes to this stuff um no you know not not so much anymore because there definitely is a lot more educational information out there now about about what we you know should be doing with in regards to joint mobility I mean you know, 10 years ago, the word mobility, people didn't even, we, we weren't even really hearing that very much. And now it's kind of like a buzzword. And we're but starting it, to move. What it means, though, I don't think, I, I feel like people hear Correct. it and they think it, it is flexibility. They yes. don't really connect yes. the two together. I'm right. Sorry, I'm going to cut you off. Yeah. And that's very, that's a very important point that I do find myself um, educating on a lot where the difference, the difference between flexibility and mobility, we, we're looking at flexibility as more of a passive means of range of motion. So, you know, if, you know, how can you um, think about it as relaxing into a, a position and not really being in control of it necessarily? It's passive in nature mm-hmm. and mobility being more about your active range of motion, the the way that you can move your, your joints through their fullest ranges of motion using your muscles. And I feel like when people want to improve their mobility, like static stretching is something that right. ends up kind of being the, the first protocol. It's like, oh, I need to stretch my hamstrings and stretch my quads. Right. Is there, is there a place for these two to meld together or is one far superior in your opinion when it comes to dynamic mobility or, or some of the practices? Right. That's a great question. So yeah, I so I think that joint mobility is definitely far superior, but it also depends on who you are and what you want to do with your body. There are different activities and sports out there that do require um, probably what we would look at as more of a, um, a passive uh, means of flexibility. But the problem is if you cannot express good motor control in those end ranges of motion, you're at a greater risk of injury. Mm. So in terms of which one is, is better for the, for the general person, for the average person, mobility is going to, uh, moving your joints actively is going to provide a bigger, bigger bang for the buck. That, and that makes sense. And in some of the experience I've had, like coaching people in, in gym settings where someone might be very flexible. I mean, there's most people are not flexible, say to get into like an overhead squat position, mm-hmm. but there are some people who are too flexible and they get it there really easily. And then it's, it's, they just can't support right. it as they go through, through motion. Right. Um, and then like joint mobility, like a lot of the movements that again, just based off the experience with things that I've seen are, are kind of gliding and rotating or along the lines of like cars, um, that people might be familiar with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so is that, how, how does, how does that work and how does that help improve mobility and help your being able to move through space and support yourself? Sure. So again, if you, if you look at what our joints are designed to do, and then you actually break it down from, you know, what the, um, what the actual joint allows for in terms of range of motion, you start to see that those movements resemble circles. 
or gliding motions like lateral translations, um, figure eights, any kind of curved line. Hmm. And that's kind of important to know because like athletic movement requires you to be able to put force into the ground. And as that energy is transferred through your body, it's essentially a, bu a bunch of countering forces. One joint area rotates, the next joint area counters it. And hmm. this, this like symphony of countering uh, rotations happens as the energy is transferred through your body. So movements that appear to look linear actually are not necessarily linear. They're very spiral-like. Hmm. That's, that's how human beings put force into the ground. That's how we move explosively and fast and, and how we maintain stabilization. So it's really just a matter of anatomy and then moving with anatomy yeah. in, that, in that respect. Right, right. And so what we, what we know, sorry to interrupt you, uh, what we do know about, um, about uh, joint mobility is that when we perform those circular motions and we do so at end range of motion, right, where we're actually using our muscles to create contraction to get us to our end range of motion, we are activating more of the nerve fibers that live in our joints and tissues. And that is a, um, a way to speak to our brain, like we talked about inputs, in a very novel way with a stimulus that our brain really pays attention to. And it, it also, it's not just about range of motion, it's also equally as much about motor control. How, how smoothly can you make those movements? And that's, um, I think, one of the most important aspects of it. Hmm. And that's interesting because most people wouldn't see it that way. Like you said, people see it as linear. We're running straight. You think everything is just kind of on top of each other and, and, and moving that way. Right. And is that just because we can only see what we can see and there hasn't been – like how can you study this, right? Like how can you see how someone's internal like skeleton and joints are, are moving? Um, like how did we get – how did you the, – the practices that got you here, like is it just intuitive measures or – because – Right. So, Even if like a cadaver study, like you wouldn't be able to see something. Right. Right. Um, so. You know, the best inspiration comes from things like gymnastics, uh, martial arts, wrestling, dance. Mm. And, and those are um, and seeing what the highest level athletes are actually capable of. And then really looking at the shape of their body, because movement is really all about shapes. So when I'm working with with my athletes, I often have them like sending me video and, and still frames of them doing their sport. And I'm like freezing those pictures and looking at all the shape, the shapes that their um, joint structures are in so that I can design mobility drills that are specific to how they want to use their body. Hmm. And when you start, when you start looking at movement like that, and like, so for example, I, I work with a lot of Alpine ski racers and they're moving really fast. They're, they have G forces against them as they're doing so. They're in some really interesting positions and they have to stabilize their body against all these other forces coming from these different, um, these different variables. And I'll look and I'll say, okay, what positions their head in? What positions their neck in? What position is their eyes in? And I'm working down the chain, you know, looking at every piece, their pelvis, what are their hips doing? And when you start looking at movement that way, then you start seeing what I was talking about where what's happening at the joint level is really interesting and it's not, things are not maybe as linear as they, they appear. 
And that's interesting because you feel like the, the way I'm, I'm in- interpreting what you're saying when you're creating some sort of plan for something that's specific and specialized like Alpine skiing, right? Like they mm-hmm. have to be all over the place. And just like watching those people go down, I was like, I can't imagine putting myself in that in those positions. Yeah, it's a while. So when you create this plan, are you helping them get to those positions or are you, because a lot of times it seems like if you, what I would interpret of some sort of coaching is helping move everything back to center. I, I feel like there's a lot of times of, of what we're told is like, we need to strengthen around that so that you're not moving or not going out of uh, a particular range of motion. So is it built, do you build it to help people get to those positions safely or is it more like kind of a strengthening and mobility so they can move back to where they right. should so- be? So for me, it's, I want to, I want to perform those, them to perform those drills so that they can move into those positions with greater ease. But then what we do is we, we, by changing the variables, when we work on our mobility, such as using a band, right? We're now strength training the range of motion. Mm. And we might add variables like bands for uh, strength training the range of motion. I might add um, a metronome so they can move and they can time things better with, hmm. with that particular movement. And, you know, there's different, there's different ways we might just use different tools. Like I might want my ski racer to be under a lot of load. So I have them, um, holding a kettlebell at the same time as mobilizing a joint so that we're, we're trying to give their body a lot of load at the same time so they can learn how to manage that load, but then also, move those joints the way that they need to as relaxed, you know, as possible. Huh. And, you know, we're, most people run, listening are obstacle course racers or runners. Do you find, what are some things that you find in, in runners that are that way? And I'm, I'm guessing everybody does have their own specific movement patterns. Um, but, you know, uphill, downhill running, or just flat running even, are there specific things that stick out to you as far as the, the motion that, that's, that you can help train? In terms of what they may need, yeah, yeah. So with with runners, it's um, it's huge to be practicing mobility drills with the with the lower extremity, like the think feet, ankles, knees, right? Because that's that's where the force begins, mm. right? You're putting force into the earth. The earth's putting force back into you, and you want that energy transfer to happen as efficiently as possible. So with runners. It's a lot of moving the joints in your feet, your ankles, your knees, your hips, and then also your pelvis. Because at the pelvis, that's where this energy crosses. And then so energy that's coming in, say, the the right leg will cross at the pelvis and end up exiting the left side of the body, right? Up the spine, the neck, the shoulder, the arm, right? Mm -hmm. So we want to be working on all of those involved joints so that that energy can move through the body more efficiently. And is there a way to make it like synergistic where would you move like using your left shoulder while you are mobilizing your right leg or or is that kind of, yeah, absolutely. So I would consider that like more on the advanced end of things. So at first I'm teaching people how to independently move their joints just in a neutral stance or maybe in a lunge position. Mm-hmm. But where it goes in terms of adding those variables, another variable you can add is more of a dual tasking approach where you know we've got the left hip being mobilized at the same time as the right shoulder. Hmm. Right? We could be mobilizing the left knee at the same time as the right elbow. 
And those combination movements can actually be really effective. And that's just like mind blowing, right? Like, cause running is can, people would might consider just very basic movement, you know, yeah. and all that's involved in it and, and being able to mobilize the, the, the counter sides and your elbow people are probably like my elbow I'm running like my yeah. shins hurt <laughs> I'm right, running, right. My shins right now um but I can tell you too in terms of runners just because there's so much impact and and there's so many miles that just build up over time joint mobility is amazing for recovery mm. that's like you it's it literally will erase some of those miles and um, decrease the the time of, uh, that you need for recovery so that you can do more. And, and could you speak to that just a bit? Because I know my main limiting factor when it comes to training is that my just my feet end up hurting. <laughs> you know, yeah. like I just end like, okay, I just end in pain. Like energy wise, I'm good. I'm just end up kind of being in pain. I need to back it off. Right. What are those mechanisms that are that like mo- joint mobility would clear up? Like what is happening that is causing that pain? And, 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 and what are these miles adding? So it, it kind of comes back to what we were just describing where it's about uh, force transfer through the body. How efficiently is that happening? And when there's joint areas that are not moving nicely, you can look at those as areas where we're going to see a, an energy leak. Hmm. So it's a kink in the armor, really. And, you know, energy, you know, hits those areas and it's, it's not as efficiently and, and maybe that energy is dispersed and your body has to work extra hard to try to deal with it. And over time, that just builds up and there's wear and tear on those localized tissues because they're having to work so hard to deal with that energy. So, so that's why it's important to learn how to move the joints in your feet, move, the, move your ankles, move your knees, all that stuff. And it can be used as preparation for what you're about to do as an endurance athlete. It can be used as a cool down. And um, also it should be a part of your everyday recovery practice. That's just something that I just wrote down, like thinking about this now, it's like movement versus um, mobility, but essentially you're saying it's the same thing, right? Like if you're able to move and, and, and handle the load, like your movement will improve, which will then reduce the amount of like energy leakage. Yep. Once. Yeah. And it's just, yeah. And in terms of a recovery practice, the joint mobility is a better, a better use of time than say, you know, 15 minutes of joint mobility after you run is a much better use of your time than 15 minutes of foam rolling. Mm -hmm. Because when you're doing something like joint mobility, you're actually learning how to move better. When you're doing foam rolling, you're flopping around on the ground (laughs) and you're digging it into things that hurt. So it's not that something like foam rolling doesn't have a purpose, but if you were to compare those things that we generally see people doing as a recovery practice the joint mobility piece is so important because you are actually spending that time to improve your movement and make your brain better from it. It's useful, right? It'd be like, yeah, it'd be like spending a time after basketball practice, like either shooting free throws or working on form drills or like icing, like icing, I guess would be, a yeah. good, you know, like this is yep. a practice that was going to translate practically right. into and make you better and not wear and tear. Um, and yeah, and, and like the, the running shoes in general, you know, they're kind of built to help people not have to worry about this type of stuff as much. Right. Um, so is that something that you feel you're having to undo? Because that, 
to me, I, I look at running shoes and big chunky shoes as a tool for people who aren't able to, you know, move in this way or have the resources or even the knowledge to, to teach, to teach and train themselves that, but still want to run, still want to be active. So I think that there's a place for them, Right. but I can see on the other side, how they do act and ultimately end up like a crutch. So is that, is this also real beneficial for people who are running in bigger shoes or do you, do you have any thoughts on running shoes? Yeah, I do. So I would actually, I would, I would encourage people to be slowly working towards a more minimal shoe without crossing into like a dangerous situation where they no longer have like the protection that they need if they're doing terrain based stuff. Right. Um, or putting on, yeah, putting on huge, um, you know, huge miles. Um, everybody is different. So you do have to, like, it's a process that you have to, you have to figure out for you. You can't just say, all right, I just saw this cool ad on Instagram and now I'm going, I'm going completely minimal, mm-hmm. right? Cause you'll pay a price for that. And, um, however, the reason, the reason that we want to, we want to make sure that our footwear is is mobile enough for us is that a shoe that is has a lot of material on it that doesn't bend very nicely in different areas essentially closes down those joints in our feet mm-hmm. and and when joints close there are um, reflexive actions that take place that essentially down regulate the function of our muscles so for example if you're in a shoe that's really tight and it's not mobile in the heel and, and that's actually like one of the main things that you'll see in like a more traditional shoe is that if you go to try to, to bend the shoe at its heel, it won't bend. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of shoes have a rod in there and it's like a very old design and you try to twist it and there's nothing. So if your heel bone is constantly getting jammed and you're closing the joints in that area, you could actually have um, different um, issues where you don't have the same output that you would otherwise in your muscles. Like uh, an example is your hamstring might not have the function, its optimal function, if your heel is constantly getting jammed. Which would be less power output. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we see that there's different joints in the feet have different correlations to different, you know, musculature in the lower body. Hmm. But the point is, if those joints can't move, then those nerve fibers that are supposed to send important information back to our brain about, you know, the terrain we're on, how fast we're moving, what kind of force is involved, which way are we going? That's all, those are all those proprioceptive skills. Well, you are down-regulating or desensitizing that very important sense. And that would be like putting on a pair of winter gloves and telling somebody, good luck this week using your cell phone. Mm. Like after a week of having winter gloves on and trying to use your cell phone, you're, you're going to be frustrated because you don't have the same feeling. You can't move the same. You're, you're, um, the coordination of what you're doing is suffering. And so many people are wearing clunky shoes around for so long that their feet become immobile. And that could definitely cause issues down the road. If you're, if you're a runner. That's a great analogy. And with the, the chunky shoes in, in general, it just kind of ends up being this loop uh, that people get stuck in. I've definitely been guilty of this where moving into a minimal shoe, it kind of sucks. <laughs> like if you don't have, if you're not, if you're shut down and you don't have these, right um, the ability to use some of these joints or move through these m- motions. So 
it feels way worse, like during and after. And people are training for stuff, right? right. So they are what's going to make them feel better on the 10 mile run is a pair of Hoka is, is these, these new energy return return shoes where you actually can't feel anything like these new Nike, like the 4% or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what is a process that you would encourage people cause to get into, because that's what happened to Vibram when they first came out when, you know, 2006, 2007, they promised that you would get better results and more and healthy running, healthier running. So people slap them on. They're like, cool, yeah. here we go. And then they got hurt. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Right. And, right. And, and they're like, you lied to us. Like, well, you weren't supposed to do that. So how do you, how can people transition into something like that? Um, you know, the first thing is it's better to, if you're somebody that feels like you do have to be dependent on a shoe with, with more material and more protection at the very least, you can still be doing, um, mobility drills for your feet and your Mm -hmm. ankles and still wearing the shoe that you wear if you feel you need it. But what you're doing before and after you run is you're decompressing your joints and that has huge value. But if for somebody that wants to actually start that process of become wearing a more minimal shoe, you do have to do it on the slower side, but you should learn how to move your feet first Mm -hmm. and then start to, yeah, start to gradually go into more of a minimal shoe. And what you're going to find is that if you're going through good joint mobility practices, you're learning how to load your lower body in some awkward positions. And that's in essence, over time, making your tissues more adaptable and stronger. So that, that is something that should be happening at the same time as uh, changing your footwear up. Yeah, that's a good way to put it so that it doesn't have to be this all or nothing approach. Like the people that's like right. getting new shoes, it's going to be a minimal runner now, at mm-hmm. least if you have the the process and doing the drills to, to decompress and, and things of that nature, it would make it a little bit easier or at least get some of the benefits. Yeah. And you can, you can also, um, you can take your shoes off and, you know, portions of your training, um, not, not running necessarily. Um, I just mean like gym stuff, mobility stuff. You can do it barefoot mm-hmm. and you can start to, you can start to, uh, you know, create smarter feet that way. Yeah. Or even if you have a, a minimal pair that, you might not be able to run in if you have the the Vibrams or a pair of Merrells or something like that. Yeah. You probably use those for strength instead. Right. Um, cool. How are you on time? I'm okay, Rich. I'm, okay. I'm good. Cool. It's cool if we keep rolling for a while? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So an- another part of the with, – with running, you know, people think legs, and we've, we've covered that it's more than, than that, and it, it's all one fluid motion, but also – breathing and that's a barrier for people who are getting into it at first and they just think oh my my breathing's bad or they have a tough time keeping up and they're not and, and it might be one of the first things to go for them and that's kind of their indicator of fatigue might just be short, shortness of breath right. um and i know that you guys do stress stress the the importance of of breath training and that's another one. It's kind of like the first conversation we have as far as the, the decision-making one. Like you don't know how other people breathe. You don't really have a measurement verse for what you've done and how your breathing is. So how, how do you guys assess breathing? How can you train the actual like process of breathing while sure. in, during exercise? <clears throat> yeah, it's so important. It makes up such a large part of what we do with people. It has um, huge, huge ramifications and, and really reaches into every facet of, of your life because it's a, it's a main, um, it's, it's of importance for survival. So, you know, if you're breathing poorly, it's definitely, it's definitely going to shut you down in a number of different ways. And when we assess breathing, first thing I'm doing is I'm just watching to see how a person 
um, is moving as they breathe, whether that's like on an intake process, if I'm, if I'm just meeting with them in person, um, I'm literally looking to see if they're what we would call an upper chest breather. And mm-hmm. those are the folks that generally build tension in their shoulders and neck. And when they inhale, they're up here with it rather than down at say the lower ribs where you just, you really don't see anything, right? When, when you, when you evaluate somebody who's breathing reasonably well, you don't see a lot of movement. If you see any, it's pretty low in the, uh, in the rib cage um, area. And then we see those, uh, those upper chest breathers where it's very obviously up in the shoulders. So just based on, on what it looks like when a person's breathing, you can actually gather a lot of information. Uh, people who are upper chest breathers are generally um, over breathing which is really common with, uh, with people, meaning that they're essentially breathing too quickly. Their rate of respiration is faster than we would like it. And that kind of goes with that, that high stress, right, type of breathing. And, um, and when people are not under that stress and they're not an upper chest breather, they're a little bit more chill and relaxed with it. And you see good breathing practices uh, through the nose. Mm-hmm. versus people who are upper chest breathers and actually um, hyperventilating, you'll see that they are uh, what we call a mouth breather. And those are people that are just breathing through their mouth um, more um, time than um, they should, right? So when you, when you get into like intense athletic activities, there's definitely going to be a point where breathing through the mouth happens. Mm-hmm. And I don't look at it as a bad thing at all. But if you're breathing through the mouth during your day-to-day routine, when you're not training or when you're doing things that don't require a lot of energy, that's the type of dysfunctional breathing that we don't want to see. And a lot of that also is important to, uh, to identify while a person is sleeping. Mm. Um, it's really important that people are nasal breathing in and out through the nose when they're asleep. And as we know, (laughs) many people are not doing that and there could be, you know, lots of different reasons for it. But, um, so those are, those are, you know, the more, more simple ways to look at breathing. And, and then we actually, then we have actual functional assessments where we ask people to do different breathing exercises and then we score them, you know, for time and that kind of thing. Yeah. The, uh, the, well, I've, I've done a little bit of work on this and while sleeping, it's interesting because you can't, you're not conscious. You don't really have any choice. I've mm-hmm. spent, when I first started, I was taping my mouth shut and just yep. sleep and like, it, it's like you're fine and then you wake up and you go into the mirror and then you look at yourself with your mouth taped shut and it's pretty weird. <laughs> it's pretty yeah. weird, but it, but it's definitely helpful. It definitely helps train that. And, and what the signs are like having like a wet mouth when you wake up as opposed to that dryness is, is, is much better. Right. Um, and you mentioned over breathing yeah. in like a negative sense and intuitively it's like, okay, cool. Like how can you over breathe? Like, Mm-hmm. why wouldn't that be better if I'm getting more oxygen and if I'm breathing at a higher rapid rate and, and doing, and, and shouldn't I be able to do more with the breath I'm breathing? And like, why is over breathing bad? So over, over breathing essentially um, disrupts the, the balance of, of gas exchange from oxygen to CO2. And when somebody's over breathing, they are um, actually kind of hyper oxygenating themselves and they're not building as much CO2. And CO2 is actually uh, the really important gas that is uh, largely involved in so many different internal processes in our body. So 
breathing is important for, for everybody and for athletes because it affects the chemistry and the pH of our body. So if we're hyperventilating during our day, and I don't mean hyperventilating like, you know, it's, like you can really see them panting. Yeah, yeah I mean, um, it's very subtle. It's very subtle. They're just breathing faster than they should, and it's probably through the mouth. Um, that changes the gas exchange and brings in more oxygen than we would actually like and disrupts the level of CO2 that we're building. And, th- and that will negatively affect pH in the body and generally increase our sympathetics, which is more, mm-hmm. um, think more like fight flight. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when our sympathetics, um, go up, that generally leads to, um, you know, potentially increased levels of pain, increased levels of stress and poor performance eventually, right. Hmm. Not being able to sustain the quality of movement that we're after. Interesting. I'm also like thinking yeah, increased stress. Uh, if you're in the sympathetics higher, like your sleep is probably worse. Definitely. Uh, just the, everything is just a little bit more on high end. Cause I was going to yeah. ask, is there any type of acute feeling? Cause uh, people probably know if they're, they probably haven't thought about it, but if they think about it for a day, they'd probably be like, okay, it does seem like I'm breathing more out of my mouth. Or if they go for a jog for two minutes, they'll know. Um, yeah. So if you, if you go for a jog and in that little warm up portion of your run, requires you to already open your mouth like we're talking like one minute two minute three minutes into things then you probably don't have a great co2 tolerance and, and you're deviating towards the the mouth breathing pattern much much faster than you should so and beginning it, your run with the nasal breathing is actually really effective for people hmm. that's a good way to, to practically apply it and Absolutely. is it more of a tolerance issue or a um more of a skill set then like when it comes to where you're breathing like does it have to do with the co2 tolerance or some of those tests that you measured where there's some sort of time associated with it or are people not able to like engage and and fully breathe into their diaphragm so it's it's there's uh it's it's absolutely both of those things so the skill of breathing is important because as you start to dive into some of the like more intense respiration work that we do, there's a, there's air hunger, the feeling of air hunger associated with it. So that's like, you want to breathe, but you know, you're not supposed to, we're trying to reduce the rate of breathing and being able to handle air hunger is a skill. Like you, it's a sensation and you learn how to deal with that sensation better the same way you would if you were just, starting a new sport right like lactic lactic tolerance even yeah and let's say it's even the same as like okay i just started playing soccer and i'm not used to getting kicked in the shin as much as i am like eventually that stuff like those feelings just go away it's just part (laughs) of it and so when you start when you start um doing respiration work that requires you to change your breathing patterns there's a lot of air hunger associated with it and you have to get sensitized to that feeling and that's a skill Hmm. Uh, and then there's other aspects that come into play as well um, mobility is a huge one. So if you have an immobile rib cage, spine, whether it's your, your lower back, your mid back, or even your neck, your shoulders, those are all areas of the body that need to be able to move because good breathing actually requires those joint areas to be able to, to move energy through them and, and, uh, and be, um, and, and move as you inhale and exhale. That makes sense. And something that else that is might seem silly, but it happens to me when I'm breathing outside, 
my nose will start to run. <laughs> and it's, is that something that will dissipate because just the nose that, will learn to clear, clear itself out because that that's generally, gonna, yeah, that generally goes away over time. So it's just going to yeah. be just kind of suck it up and get some snot on your face for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the common complaints <laughs> that we hear from people when they start doing a lot of nasal breathing work that usually does get better. And that's yeah. good to note because people might think like, Oh, my nose is running. And again, there's no reference for other people that, doing this and what the process is really like it's like well it'll get better just kind of keep on with it right right um cool so just the last thing i want to touch on because it's something that is very much part of ocr and um running to some extent is just balance training yeah and the way to kind of go about that and and you know, you see when people are considered doing like balance training is they're putting themselves on like an unstable platform, like one of those flipped over BOSU balls um, and just doing things where it's like wobbly and you can kind of feel yourself kind of grab onto whatever you can, or even like a a slack line type of thing. Um, But is this ideal for balance training? Does that really help practical application or how would you recommend people go about training their balance? All right. So um, the first thing that people need to know about balance training is that it's actually different from stability. I actually look at stability as the outcome of balance. Mm. So an example of like a stability exercise would be maybe you're, you're standing on one leg and you're stabilizing a load and you're not really moving through space very much, but you're just, you're just on one leg or whatever it is. And you have to stabilize that. And to me, and, and through the work that we do, balance training is more about can you stabilize your body as your head and your eyes move? So we hmm. actually say that balance training requires your head and your eyes to move because we have different reflexes that are tied into our vestibular function. So remember that the inner ear, that when stimulated, our vestibular system senses movement and helps to calibrate our muscle tone and help us adjust our body based on where our vestibular system thinks we are, how we're moving, which way is up, all of those things. Hmm. So for, um, for understanding more about the function of the inner ear, it's essentially measuring accelerations of head and neck movement through space, and then also body movement like up and down, side to side, and we need the movement of our body or our head and neck to send those signals to the nerves in the inner ear. And then our brain has a better idea where we are in space. So that means you have to move your head and eyes at some point when you want to train your balance. And because we want to be as specific as possible, practicing balance drills on stable ground has more application than say on an unstable surface, like something like a BOSU ball or a physio ball. And it's not that the BOSU ball and physio ball is bad and you should never do it because it's actually a lot of fun. Yeah. But what we see, and there's like research and stuff that you can dig into that um, tells you that, you know, after like six weeks or 12 weeks of, you know, working on an unstable surface, there may have actually been possible reductions in overall like muscular output or um, uh, reduced um, balance, things like that. And and here's why that happens. If you stand on a BOSU ball or a slack line, it's the body under head that is moving. 
but your head and your neck generally stay in the same place. Right. And that's a different reflex. That's called a writing reflex. So the body is coming out from underneath you, your head and neck stays right where it is as you adjust to stabilize your body. Hmm. That is a different reflex from what we generally want to be training as athletes because we want our head and neck to do the moving through space so that we can stimulate the inner ear. If I move my head and neck, my vestibular system upregulates and gets information. If my head and neck do not move, the opposite happens. There's less information. It's downregulated. So you could be doing a lot of unstable surface training, thinking you're training your balance, but you're really only training one reflex, and it's not the most prolific reflex that we need for pretty much almost all athletic movement. And that's, yeah, it seems like it's a different skill. <laughs> it's like, a yeah. Different skill entirely. And, and there's going to be some activities that getting comfortable on, an, on a more unstable surface might make sense, right? But if you think about it, as an athlete, we want to be able to put force into the ground. Yeah. And, and that ground is generally always stable underneath us. The it's world the ground. Is, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's the world is not moving underneath us. It's us moving on top of the world. Right. And like, yeah, all, all I can think of is a practical use for it be like maybe a nin ninja warrior or something where people yeah. have to jump onto things like the very That's small right. amount, like that might be an example of where you might want to use that. Yeah, yeah. So what would be an example of balance training then for, for people to use? Okay, this is a this is a cool explore, exploration for some of the listeners to go through on on their own, like in their next training session. So you want to learn about how the vestibular system has an influence on on our movement. You can get into any position that you want to balance. That could be standing on one leg. That could be in a lunge. And what you can do is first with your eyes open, you want to move your head very quickly and then balance in that position. So let's say I'm standing on only my right leg. Very quickly, I'm going to move my head to the left and I'm going to hold that position. And I'm going to see if I can balance. Okay. I might do the same to the right. I might do the same up. I might do the same down. Okay. And then you can repeat the same thing with your eyes closed. So as soon as you remove the visual information, everything gets harder and you have to rely more on proprioception and inner ear function. So a really simple vestibular drill that can help you um, improve your, your balance and your stabilization is you get yourself into a tricky position to balance with your eyes open and your eyes closed and you move your head really quickly into a position and stay there. And then the next iteration of that would be, can you move your head continuously back and forth, whether it's left, right, up, down, with your eyes open, and then eventually with your eyes closed and still maintain your balance. Hmm. And those are two really cool iterations that um, teach people right away how important our visual sense is, because as soon as you remove it, everything's harder. But then you also get a sense for how your inner ear is telling your body where you are and, and helping you stabilize <clears throat> because when you move your head very quickly like that, it's really hard to maintain your position. Even just closing your eyes and bouncing yeah. on one foot is hard. Like do it, it is. and then close your eyes and it, you instantly like, and even thinking about moving your head in that position, it is just, it will take yeah. some work. <laughs> that, <laughs> it does. And is it, is it a slow process for people typically, or is it, no, actually. I mean, you see, here's the thing, like almost nobody's actually training their balance. Right. You really look at it like 
yeah, we do stabilization exercises in the gym and, you know, we do dynamic things and, and that has a vestibular component to it. When you're moving through space, your inner ear is helping you, um, you know, balance no matter what you're doing. But in terms of isolating balance training, very few people are actually doing that. So it's a very novel stimulus. And if you start practicing that pretty frequently, you'll probably see results um, relatively fast. Hmm. And just the, the last thing that really like sticks out in my mind and from the athletes who I coach, you know, it's mostly runners, obstacle course, race athletes. So juggling several things can be hard for people on uh, a real world schedule. And like we mentioned before, people have a tough time moving their pelvis and their spine just because they don't move that much. There's not much time. So when they're training for a marathon, they're going to go run six miles and that's right. their time to train. So how, how does this fit in and how, how, cause to me, like having you explain it, it sounds like this is kind of the foundation, right? But, but a lot of times it's people are, are training for a result or for some sort of end goal. And so they want to focus on the one thing that's going to hit that they know will help them with that. Mm-hmm. So how do you, where do you put this in line as far as like how to fit this in to a training schedule or how, or how would you, you know, more or less convince someone that this is what they need before they start any of that other stuff. Are we talking primarily about like, um, is there any particular uh, thing you're talking about? Like mobility versus balance training or anything like that? I guess just, yeah, say, let's say mobility, because that, that, that was a really good practical example you gave of, of people coming back doing mo- mobility through their feet and ankles and mm-hmm. as like their cool down. Um, whereas most of the time I'm guessing people finish their run, take a shower and then go, pick up their kids or something. Right. Um, so like how, where does this fit in? Like how can, like what, how would you explain it to somebody? So yeah. So mo- mobility is definitely the thing that I, I would encourage people to to take on as soon as possible as like the, the highest payoff thing they could integrate into their practice. And it integrates in, in your warm up and your cool down so easily. It, it could be as easy as a, or simple as a couple of exercises, you know, to start, making sure that you go through some of that joint mobility work before you run. Cause what generally happens is um, you start to move your joints that sets the stage for better quality movement. And then when you go and run, you're now loading your body under the influence of better functioning joints. And over time we see that people adapt to that. There's a tissue remodeling process that happens and energy starts moving through the body more efficiently and it's, uh, it can be really high payoff. So I always encourage people to start with their joint mobility at the, at the beginning of what it is that they're going to do, because then they're going to load their body and get the most out of it. And then at the end is a great way to then decompress the joints and recover from what you did. Hmm. That's great. It's awesome advice that people can put in. It's just a matter of carving out time and making sure you're sticking it to it. Yep. Um, so this is fantastic. I like my mind's blown. I'm like, going in circles like trying to make sure i get everything down but we got it recorded so we can always go back so um cool i'll let you go because i really appreciate your time and uh, where can people where can people find you um so our website is uh, cruiselite.com k-r-u-s-e then the word elite and you can also find us on instagram same same handle cruiselite and you know we we post on instagram pretty frequently different mobility exercises breathing exercises educational concepts things like that So that's where you can find us. And um, yeah, so. 
Very cool. Yeah, I'll make sure to post everything in the show notes. And yeah, like the the blog you have on your website is thick with all this stuff too. Like lots of really yeah. cool articles and videos. And um, are you, do you have a YouTube page as well? Then yeah, we have a YouTube page. We probably don't we don't put as much on YouTube. Instagram seems to be our main platform at cool. the moment. Yeah. Perfect. Sweet. Yeah. So I'll make sure to link everything here. Um, once I press stop on this, it will, will stay on the, this piece. So I appreciate you guys listening. Taylor, I appreciate you popping on, man. This was great. Thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun.